Lectionary Lab Live is recorded live in Gainesville, Florida and Brasstown, North Carolina. Welcome, everybody, to the Lectionary Lab Live. I'm John Fairless. I'm here with my Bubba, Delma Chilton. Say, hey, Bubba. Hey, Bubba. Hey, man. Good to hear you today. We're going to work our way through a few texts and think about preaching for the 21st Sunday after Pentecost. These are the texts for October the 22nd, 2023. Some what familiar text today, uh, maybe a couple of interesting moments here and there, but uh, we're uh, looking forward to what you have for us today. Tell me what you got on your mind, Bubba. Well, we have themes as usual, and what I'd like to, we're going to do today is talk about the two Hebrew scripture lessons and then the gospel and we don't need as as desperate a need for an escape clause. <laughs> today as we did last week but still oh. i'm gonna hit thessalonians last as a kind of a outlier yeah. and then clause. yeah and, and then, then there's the epistle yeah possible yeah. there so themes today what what is um and I, I have to say this is a reformed calvinist theme much more than it is okay. a lutheran theme we differ on this but uh, the sovereignty of God mm-hmm. and issues of election and chosenness are pretty prominent, and uh, particularly the Hebrew Scriptures, and a little bit if you as as you read through and think through the gospel lesson. Um, well, our our Presbyterian listeners are rejoicing <laughs> that finally we got around. Yeah. I had a I had a I had a friend. Um, who uh, I was college roommate with, and uh, he was long, he became a Lutheran because Delmer's a Lutheran, you know, kind of thing. When they <laughs> decided to start going to church, and and uh, he his wife passed, and he got remarried to a a woman there from Houston where he was living, and she went to a big a big uh, supposedly uh, in non denominational named church, you know, mm-hmm. the River or the the flow or you know one of those names you know <laughs> and uh he called me up and he said delmer what in the world is the sovereignty of god <laughs> cuz he had never heard the phrase yeah in in 30 years or 40 30 years plus of going to the lutheran church and uh, yeah but the sovereignty of god has to do with god's and you know you come from a background that talks more about it than i do but god's control or authority over everything and that is asserted here very much um verse 19 in uh, the exodus text you know it talks about the grace and i'll have great i'll be gracious to whom i will be gracious and show mercy on whom i will show mercy and it's my choice that's the sovereignty he can god's in control of how that happens um isaiah i am the lord there is no other and assert some of that authority. Even uh, in First Thessalonians, it talks about the true and living God as opposed to any other kind of God. And um, Matthew, I think the assertion that 
render unto God the things that are God's is, is reflected in a kind of sense of a sovereignty that God has allowed Caesar to have certain controls, but God is in control. Um, a, side, a second theme that relates to this is election and chosenness, and, and this is where the big debate in American theology is always between the Reformed, the Calvinist, and the Arminians, and the Lutherans are standing on the sidelines looking at it, um, because then they're saying, but how much freedom does the human being have? And this would assert uh, a very, this these texts pretty much assert a pretty much uh, clear chosenness. Yeah. Um, yeah. Verse 19, again, distinct, we are distinct people who have found favor. That asserts a kind of God's assertion over that. Uh, uh, Isaiah, I've called you by name, you're chosen. Three, three and four, that's an election. And First Thessalonians, verse four, he has chosen you. Yeah. Uh, Matthew doesn't get into this issue today, and that's okay. Yeah. So those two both together, we're dealing with um, the sovereignty of God and God's election and chosenness, and how does how do we relate to all of that? Yeah. Yeah. Those those well, are some themes I want to outstanding. Delve into. You alluded to uh, my background, and uh, <clears throat> Baptists kind of. Um, over the years, we have Baptists of both persuasions, some a little more Calvinist, some a little more Arminian, and uh, I, there was a great line in a book I read several years ago talking about uh, when I was doing some Baptist history and heritage work, and talking about coming to America when the Baptists were, came from Europe, and said, and as became the American, um, this is not a direct quote, as became the American ideal, what happened was uh, the Baptists became much more practical than worrying about theological, and so the Arminians and the Calvinists had to kind of meld uh, their you know, belief, and uh, we came up with some pretty interesting things. Took a little security of the believer from the sovereignty of God, and, well, everybody is elect by God. They just don't choose to follow through on it from the Arminians and I don't know. Somehow, got away with all of that. But <laughs> well, yeah, <clears throat> theological. If, if theological inconsistency was a death warrant in American Christianity, we'd all be dead. You yeah, know? <laughs> there, there, there's ambiguity all over the place, whether we want to admit it or not. Yeah, I remember well, talking well, about that. Talking about that divide, that that yeah. debate. Uh, my, you know, one of my granddaddy's primitive, Bab, you know, Baptist deacon kind of line but he would tell the story that says yeah the two preachers were arguing about whether they believed in election and the missionary baptist said i believe in election said god votes for you the devil votes for you and you cast the deciding vote Uh oh <laughs> so there's a there's a there free go. will assertion there and there the, you go so those are two themes we're going to deal with with that in the gospel lesson and a little bit from Isaiah going to be dealing with issues of what Lutherans have defined as two kingdoms. What is the relationship of, in America we call it church and state, but you know, what is the relationship between religious authority and civic authority? How do those work out? In Isaiah, you know, you got this larger context, and how do how do the Israelites deal with the idea 
that God is using someone who does not know God <laughs> to be their rescuer, their Messiah. Messiah, uh, literally. Interesting, complex thing. And in Matthew, um, religion rather than, uh, rather sub. It's not, it's not subver His re reaction is it's not subversive, nor anti-government. How do you thread that needle? Is what? Jesus, how do you live within the context of authority? And do you are you subservient to it? Are you do you oppose it? Uh, do you go to bed with it? In, in a political terms, and uh, it's still a very live question. And I question. will, I will observe as we talk about Matthew. Jesus doesn't answer the question. Right. He outlines the problem. So let's go through it. Do it to it. Those man. are the themes today: sovereignty, election, and chosenness, and two kingdoms. And they, I break them out artificially. They're all mixed up together as we go through. All right. So, Exodus. Context is this is post-Golden Calf. <laughs> you know, this is yeah. after the Golden Calf. Now, in the episode of the Golden Calf, we have Moses persuading God to repent and forgive. But in this, in verse 3, outside the 33, verse 3, God says, I'm going to stay separate. <laughs> And basically, he says, I can't even look at you, and if I did, I'd kill you. Uh-oh. You know, uh, he, he's so mad, he just says, I'm not going to I'm not gonna wipe you out, and, and I, I'm, I'm going to, you'll be all right, but I, I can't even look at you. Pretty Well, in today's text, Moses continues to push God in the tradition like Abraham and negotiating about Sodom and Gomorrah. You know, he continues to push God toward a full restoration of the relationship. So what you had last week is God relenting and repenting from punishment, but there is still no restoration of the purity of the relationship. So 12 through 17 is this Moses sort of working on God. <laughs> Who are we without you? You know we need you, Lord. We need, who are yes. we if you're not going before us? Without your presence of your glory. Are we your people or not? What makes us distinct from all other nations is that you are in our midst. Your tabernacle is with us. You are leading us. See, this is all a... Uh, literally, this is a lead up to a second covenant situation. So the, what he's working on, and God finally and says, yeah, okay, I need to totally restore this relationship. So I think one thing you could work with in, in homily with this is talk about the difference between grudgingly forgiving relenting from punishment but still staying distant and doing the work it takes to restore the relationship. Now, it's interesting for us that God is the person here, person literally, Yahweh is the person who has to move along those lines. It's very interesting to watch that work, but 
it's the Hebrew scriptures. It's it's more fun that way than a kind of Greco-Roman immovable God up there right. philosophically <clears throat> or what. So that's twelve through seventeen. Then eighteen through thirty-two is a more is a different kind of thing of Moses saying, you know, if I'm going to lead these people, almost he's saying, I need to see your glory. I need to really have this connection. It's really interesting um, playing here. Um, <laughs> it's interesting that earlier it talks about Moses talking with God face to face. And now we say, you can't really see my face. And so there's this interesting story in which he really wants the the glory of God revealed to it. God said, well, you can't see my face or you'd die. And this is a different tradition that's melded itself into this scripture of, of trying to say, the holy is so totally other that the human cannot totally be exposed to it. Which eventually this becomes uh, kind of deus abscanditis or the hiddenness of God. It evolves to the, the, the stories of when we need God the most, why is it that God it feels like God is so distant? Uh, but this is a little, this has been mined theologically and homiletically, this story. How much of God can we stand? I, I don't think, uh, you know, some people will tell you, oh, this is what this means. I'm not going to go there. I think it's one of those, it's, it's a story you look at and mine it for understanding um how much of god could we really stand yeah i think that's a one of the great ways to look at this and i'm reminded reflecting on this we have seen particularly through the exodus but really you see genesis and exodus as one big story here we have seen the god who moves Earlier, uh, we had the pillar of cloud and fire and moving with the people. And uh, we, uh, last week, very, as you laid out to begin, we had this huge conflagration. God was wroth, man. God was going to fire them all up and just, you know, almost a repeat of Sodom and Gomorrah. And then we ended with, and God repented. God changed God's mind. God had to move. Well, you're right. And so we have Moses pushing a little further. This is the God who moves. And you got that great build up. And essentially, (laughs) Moses gets God to where Moses wants God to be. You know, okay, I'll do what you've asked. I'm going to go, you know, I'm going to go with you. And then that verse 18 is like Moses going for just that last little extra bit. Yeah. Well, show me your glory. Yeah. Almost like a kid. I know I'm not supposed to see that, but why don't you show me glory? And then, yeah, I know you got a little something to say about this, probably this ending of the story. But the God who moves. And what does what does this scripture tell us about God? What can we say here? Well, this is not a static. I'm going to say, not a static, everything's set in stone, you can't change what God has decreed kind of thing. God does let us know of God's flexibility. I can be gracious to those whom I choose. I can show mercy on the ones I will show mercy. 
So it's a great tension, all right? Tension in the text, you all. That's where you do your best work, so. Yeah, and I don't, I, you know, I could say some smart aleck things about what part of God God showed. Uh, <laughs> and a southern, southern expression for revealing your utter true evil self is to show your whatever. But... Uh, <laughs> I, I, I don't know. There's no real good connection. It's just funny to me to think about. But there is the 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 to and homiletically as you're trying to think about this. I think one of the things that I would I would think about exploring is the issue of how much of God can do we want to see. That's I think the the key here. Not that what does it mean that God showed him his back. Or no. backside. No, 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 the, no. That How, God, and, and it yeah. goes with this chosen sovereignty of God because sovereignty of God, one of the parts of the doctrine is that God can control everything, but God chooses not to exert God's go. control. And at what level? I, I remember, this is sort of an aside, I remember when uh, I was uh, becoming briefly for four or five years an Episcopalian, as it were. I was licensed in the Diocese of Western North Carolina and serving the church in Murphy. And there was a a person there who uh, was soon to be ordained and going off to his own ministry who was asserting some things that he thought should be changed. He grew up, he had been a member there, and he was asserting some things that he thought should be changed, and he was asserting to me, a recent seminary graduate that he was, the rights of an Episcopal priest, of you could do this, and you can do that, you're in control of this. And and I finally said to him, son, you know, I, I want to tell you something. You're probably right, but just because you can do a thing doesn't mean you ought to. And just because God can control everything, God is wise enough not to wisdom of god and i think one of the things to be mind here is god chooses not to overburden moses with a level of a, of of awareness of the divine that is beyond what moses can handle that might be true for us i think uh as parents uh john and i are both parents uh there were times that I wanted to, I told my children the truth as much as I could, but it was graded by how much of the truth they were old enough to deal with. Right. And mature enough to deal with and what they needed to do. Um, now, as 40 and late 30s, there's no, I don't do that anymore. They're adults. <laughs> they can deal with whatever I need to tell them. But yeah. when they were 17, you know, they're five and six even as teenagers yeah even as young adults there's a there you have to you can't just be everything yeah i think that's part of sort of illustrative of where god is here he says how much can he my people take, take. Yep. How much and god did so i think that's that would be interesting to mine as you're thinking about people's struggles with how much of God and how much of God's divine will, uh, how much do we need to know, and how much can we trust, having seen the back of God, how much can we trust that that's enough? 
you and I grew up and matured and lived much of our life when print media still, you know, uh, controlled, and it was the way a lot of us got. And so the the growth of the National Enquirer is built on <laughs> the human propensity. Inquiring minds want to want know. To know. Well, yeah. now uh, we want to see it on TikTok. We, we want to see it on Instagram. We want, you know, we've... Uh, we, 24 hours a day, uh, you know, and I found myself this week praying for Israel, Palestine, everyone engulfed in that conflict. But I I admit, I come in, I've got a break for something, and I say, oh, I want to see what's happening in the war. Meaning, boy, if they're rolling those tanks in, I want to see that. It's this human desire. I want to know, I want to know, I want to know everything. And sometimes we just don't Don't need need to know. Well, the the psalm, I'm going to mention both of them together briefly, are 96 and 99. Um, both are possible alternatives depending on what Hebrew scripture lesson you use. Both are enthronement psalms. Both um, basically treat of uh, Yahweh being enthroned as God and, and, and treat of uh, this issue of sovereignty. And that's the only people in human terms we talk to about being sovereign are absolute monarchs. So that's why those work together there. And I'm going to move on from that. So Isaiah 45, 1 through 7. Um, this is um, post-exilic during the, uh, toward the end of exile. And this, 40, this is a part of a long speech of God to Israel recorded in um, Isaiah in which the, the the prophet slash Yahweh is trying to persuade the Israelite people that this Cyrus is a good thing. Yeah. That Cyrus coming in and conquering Babylon, Cyrus is from the North Assyria area, conquering things is going to be good for us. And he asserts the sovereignty of God, essentially. He's asserting that God is using Cyrus to do reach God's ends. And then our text today is uh, a quotation of a direct conversation of Yahweh with Cyrus. And he is saying to him, you're going to be my Messiah, and you don't even know who I am. You don't even know what that means. You know, that's basically what he's saying. I am the Lord, the God of Israel, who I'm calling you by name. For the sake of my servant Jacob and Israel, my chosen, I call you by your name. Though you do not know me. So I this surname is a, you. Yeah. A surname. I am, you're my Messiah, whether you like it or not. Uh. Now, this is not to persuade Cyrus. I doubt Cyrus ever knew. He may have heard eventually that he was considered by the Israelites to be their Messiah. But in reality, this is Isaiah trying to persuade the holdouts in this complex situation that God is in control of what happens in the world and God is controlling this situation for your benefit and God is using someone who is not a part of the chosen people for the benefit of the chosen people. And what you've got here 
is the Israelites are saying, now wait a minute, we are the chosen people, God deals with us, God doesn't deal with those other people. And I think a, an interesting aspect to mind for us today is the problem with American exceptionalism is we, the religious version, is we sometimes, when we call ourselves God, uh, a beacon on a hill and how God did all of this for our benefit and, and all of this religious, all this stuff, we act as though God is indifferent to all the other nations and peoples of the world. And this is this is uh, can be a reminder to us that we ain't all that. <laughs> who are God's chosen people? Not necessarily, you know, who, who are they? And the really negative um, side of American exceptionalism, which... We, we, you know, and there's a certain amount, the greatest country in the world, and I love, you know, America and all that, is what's become Christian nationalism, is a, a downside there, and has been asserted by a lot of folks in a way of melding a particular form of Christianity with the United States government in a way that's very heretical, in my view. It's not who we are as Christians or as Americans. And this text is, uh, in the larger context, is a helpful warning against that. I don't know if that's necessary at this juncture in your congregation's life, but this is, this is part of what's going on here as they're trying to talk about how does God work with the world, and perhaps it's just possible that... What's good for God and what's good for America aren't always the same thing. Mm. You hint, hint a sarcasm there. Yeah, <laughs> uh, absolutely. And, you know, uh, last week I was talking about rubbing a little Jesus on things. And this week I want to uh, <laughs> jump right quick on a high horse. <laughs> Go for that, it. That um, when you are going to use scripture, quote, to say, well, see, this is scriptural, and we do this. If you're going to read, just and even in the case of the texts we have for today, read them all. Read, get the flow of the whole thing, because I know the example of Cyrus has been used yes. by uh, religious persons and political persons who are happy to use religious persons to say, well, see, God can even choose a leader from outside the tradition, may not even be a, a godly person, but God can use them in order to get behind and say, well, we see the political advantage here, so we're going to, you know, we're going to get behind this. Be really clear when we're talking about whom God chooses to use that you see that uh, in the context of the Exodus passage. Right. And that it is God's purpose being worked out. It's not merely ours. And yeah. in that case, I think we're going to see the gospel uh, story really give us that helpful caution or corrective right. of keeping clear when things are serving Caesar, the government, when things are serving God. And be sure you're keeping a good, clear hold on that. Well, so, and and this. Yeah, be careful about just ripping out a verse or two and saying, see, here's what this text yeah. says. No, so this this is yeah. intended, the Isaiah text is complementary to the gospel lesson because it's basically saying, so what do you owe Cyrus? Mm -hmm. 
you know, and what do you owe God? And it's basically, you got to be careful. The warning here is, okay, so he's God's Messiah, anointed, this particular yeah. anointed one. But does that make, does that mean we worship him the way mm. we worship God? Or do we recognize that God is operative in all things? And even Cyrus, who does not even know God's name, can do things that benefit what God's about. This goes back, I think, even over to the Exodus text. We're seeing the backside. We can see things happening, but we're not really sure. We we should not pronounce as though we know what's really going on. This is an element of trusting God. and. We get into the gospel lesson, and we say, when Jesus says, render unto Caesar that which is Caesar's, and unto God that which is God, that's a really important caution as we say, okay, this this leader may be carrying out God's will, but that doesn't make this leader God or God-like. We do well to remember the backside of this uh, stepping into a claim to be chosen by God. Uh, and again, I'm going to speak of the American context because that's where I am and that's where I live. We want to be careful. Uh, those who would say, uh, in essence, America has sort of most favored nation status with God. Uh, just remember, and again, verse 7 in this this uh, Isaiah passage God says, I make wheel and I create woe. And <laughs> you ought, to echo my grandmother, you oughtn't to get too big for your britches. Yep. Uh, because we were reading the history of Israel and they understood wheel and woe. And to be God's chosen could mean that God is going to, like a parent, hold us to account for our behavior. So the the other expression is uh, don't get above your raisin. Don't get above your raisin. And Deborah my, at college had a roommate that was from uh, suburban at D.C. at a college down in North Carolina. And uh, Deborah's my wife. And Deborah one day said something to her about, ain't you got no raisins? And the girl <laughs> went into her personal pantry and said, I don't think so. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but don't, you know, don't get above yeah. your raisins. Do not become more than you ought. Yeah. So, we turn to Matthew now, as we've had this whole discussion of the backside and Cyrus as instrumental and not giving too much credit to um, your own particular nation, but not giving too much credit to the powers that be in this world, understanding God is underneath. And we got this text. Now, uh, let me say that... Um, this story is a setup story, a pronouncement story. This sets up uh, a pronouncement. It's uh, <laughs> the way in Matthew does a lot of these things. And got to remember the setting. This is between, this is the last few weeks of Jesus' life. And he has four encounters with the leaders, uh, some variously the Pharisees and Herodians, the scribes and the Pharisees, etc., etc., the Jewish leaders, and they they're four in a row. We're going to do one today. We're going to skip the second one, and then next week we're going to do three and four together. So this is where we are in Matthew 22, as we're dealing with these confrontational questions, 
And the way the story is told is to set each is to set Jesus up to make some pronouncements that are leading toward the cross. Yeah. Leading toward this encounter where Jesus stands on trial before Pilate. So keep that in mind as we hear this. Secondly, keep in mind that uh it is very clear that this is they're trying to entrap. It says up front what's happening. Yeah. yeah. They're gonna entrap him. And I, I got to say, as a fan of the gospel, and we're 22 chapters in here, and we've been reading, and <coughs> excuse me, we often talk about how the gospel writers set this up. Yeah. When you hear verse 15, when you see it, then the Pharisees went and plotted to entrap him in what he said. As a Jesus fan, you're going, you sit up and go, uh-oh, they ought to know better than that by, <laughs> by now. Something's fixing to happen. And uh, I, I, y'all know that on this show, there are very few thoughts that are out of bounds. I, I can <laughs> tell you real quick, for the first time ever yesterday, I had some extra time, and I was sitting down with my oldest son, and I was <laughs> watching Snakes on a Plane oh, with Samuel L. Jackson. There's a some, snake in my boot. Yeah, so somehow I'd, I'd never had been able to watch that, and I'm a Samuel L. fan, I'm going. And so I'm watching, and uh, the special effects aren't all that great, but snakes everywhere, snakes everywhere. And when Samuel L. gets to his classic line, I am, I have had it with these MF snakes on this MF plane. I sat up because I thought, uh-oh, snakes are toast. Because you know... <laughs> It, here here he comes. The the protagonist is about to give it his full attention. And I get that feeling when I read verse 15. Well, the Pharisees went and plotted to entrap Jesus. And I'm going, uh-oh. <laughs> Something's fixing to happen. We're about to get a major point is yeah. what it does for yeah. me. Well, here's here's a couple of things that are interesting here. Uh, the Pharisees are, are very devoted to a kind of, mm-hmm. uh, of Judaism that has to do with uh, ob- obedience to the law, separatism, mm-hmm. a real intense pietism, and they resent and dislike the Roman government uh, and anybody who colludes in any way with them. And then they go, but they go with the Herodians, which Herodians are supporters of King Herod, who is a puppet of the mm-hmm. Romans. For the Roman government. For the Roman government, and they are the worst kind of quizlings, you know, and so politics makes strange bedfellows, but this sets up. Jesus has got everybody worried that's in the power <laughs> structure, yeah. and they will do whatever they can to get him. And I, I, I but besides Hamas and Israel craziness going on and that awful, awful stuff, you also have, as we record this, a, the U.S. government at a standstill because uh, one party cannot get its act together to elect a speaker. And I'm thinking, eventually, some kind of coalition that makes no absolute sense mm-hmm. whatsoever is going to have to evolve in order for anything to get done. You're going to yeah. have the equivalent of the Pharisees and the Herodians making... Mm-hmm. an agreement to get something done. And yeah. nobody's, and, and the purists at any level outside of that are not going to be happy. Right. But something's got to happen for the government mm-hmm. to function. Yeah. So here they're saying, in order to get Jesus, we got to pull out all the stops. That's what they're doing. Mm-hmm. 
And so the next thing is a bless your heart moment. Sweet smiles and hidden daggers. Uh, Those who are not from the South. uh, You know, bless your heart can be a sincere relational statement of care. But I would argue that probably in the last 20 or 30 years, for various reasons, it has evolved more into a insincere. What an idiot. <laughs> what an idiot. So they're bless coming with heart. a bless your heart moment, mm-hmm. smiling at Jesus and said, we know you are sincere and teach the way of God in accordance with truth. And you show deference to no one. And Jesus is going, all right, bless your heart. Yeah. <laughs> I know what's coming here. And so this is a setup because half the people, the fair, represented by the Pharisees in this question, hate paying taxes to the Romans. Yeah. And if Jesus says, yeah, you should pay your taxes to the Romans, that's your divine duty, he's going to lose that crowd. They're going to smear him with that. Yeah. The Herodians, on the other hand, are making their living off of people paying taxes to the emperor. <laughs> yeah. And that the powers that be that run the country don't want some person with a big following going around saying you shouldn't pay your taxes, you know? Yeah. And so, there, of course, it's uh, is it lawful to pay taxes to the emperor or not? Well, this is such an obvious setup. And it is so obvious that Jesus is going to slide out of this noose. We have to think, Matthew did tell this story, include this story, just to show people how clever Jesus is. We already knew. That's not the point. And I've heard people say, they thought they could get Jesus, but Jesus is too smart for them. This, This was not, he didn't have to be all that clever. That's not the point of this story. And he, he says, well, okay, you're putting me to the test, which could also be tempting me. This puts us, puts us back. Test and temptation puts us back to the wilderness and the temptations. We're leading it. This is part of what's happening here. Is there, What they're showing is Jesus once again resisting the same temptations that he was presented in the wilderness of... Um, Bow down to me, and I will make you powerful. If he comes out on the side of the emperor, you know, then maybe he can get some power here. I mean, that's a calculation. How do, this is an invitation to Jesus to sell out on behalf of his power. And he says, "Bring me, bring me the, bring me the coin." Doesn't matter how much a denarius is worth; it's just a coin. Whose head is this and whose title? To the emperor. So this this thing belongs to the emperor. Mm-hmm. So give him what belongs to him. But give the therefore things, yeah. the emperor the things that are the emperor's and to God the things that are God. Ah. Now the kicker is when they heard this they were amazed and they left him and went away. What? Uh, amazed? I'm, I'm not. <laughs> they were Stunned. like. They yeah. were stunned he slid out of them so easily. But also they were stunned that the answer 
beyond being clever, very much defined the issue for all of us. And it is not a a literal, I don't know what to say, not literal, it is not a defined answer for all time and all people. In the sense that it's not about taxes, it's not about emperors, we don't have those. It is about, in any human situation, whether the government claims to be a Christian government or whatever, mm-hmm. there comes a point that a person of faith has to figure out where does this work for me? What do I owe to civic society? And at what point do I withhold and say, no, this belongs to God? Money can go to the government, but worship, idolatry, Basically, the scriptural witness is do not put your trust in princes. That is, obey the government as much as possible. Has been the Christian witness. Work with it. It is for the common when it's for the common good, but do not give it that devotion and support and care, and do not put in your hopes for the future. Into the government, they'll fail you. Do that not, belongs to God. That's it. Do not give to any one else, any other thing, anything else that which belongs to God. And you'd think we'd have gotten that from the time on Sinai and how the Decalogue opens, but boy, we get tested with that over, over and over and over. Ago. over. Yeah, and and you know, and sometimes it's a temporary solution, uh, in which we say, "Well, you know, I'm in a tight, I'm in a tight spot. I'm in a tight spot." Yeah. That's our our reference to, "Oh, brother, where art thou? We're in a tight spot." Sometimes we get ourselves in a tight spot, and it mm-hmm. seems the best thing to do is to give uh, a certain obeyance to the government that we wouldn't normally want to give, but. That's when push comes to shove. Now, there are folks who, like the Amish and a few others, who limit, extremely limit their um, engagement with the civic government. And the other extreme is people like the Christian nationalists, perhaps, who who embrace a kind of um, the government run by the church. There, there's another side of the progressive kind of uh, liberal side, I would say, that I think has to be careful of thinking we can realize what sometimes called realized eschatology, mm-hmm. that we can bring in the kingdom of God through congressional act and an administrative state. We yeah. can do good things for the people, and we should, but that's not the same thing as serving the serving God. We have learned that the Supreme Court giveth and the Supreme Court taketh taketh away. away. All right, let's do a quick walk through our escape clause, Thessalonians. I will be brief. The next five weeks, we're going to be in 1 Thessalonians. Uh, This letter was written about several months, less than a year after Paul had begun the church in Thessalonica. Um, 
is talking to them and and there's the this has the salutation and then has the opening thanksgiving kind of prayer that's typical of pauline letters i think one of the, the really important things to that we find in here is a reminder that you are chosen people we have the great uh faith love and hope lines that are consistent with paul and there's an encouragement to witness by your life at least as much if not more than your words live that out and i like the way the faith love and hope is structured we're we we we've because of first corinthians 13 we always want faith hope and love and the greatest of these is love but i like the way this is structured for this reason we have faith in god because of the mighty acts of god in the past including the life death and resurrection of jesus we live love in the present as we live out our faith every day. And we have hope for the future because of what God has done. And I think that's a, that's a productive kind of outline that people can, can hear. That, that he, when he talks about in this wonderful line here in which he says, Your work of faith and labor of love and steadfastness of hope. And so if you need uh you just don't want to deal with any of this other stuff, that's a great sermon out That'll uh, do it right preach. there, my friends. That'll do it right there. Oh, yeah. yeah. I know we've got, a, in a way, as we're starting to think, um, got a little pre-Advent preparation yep. here at the end of this passage, you know, and uh, we're, we're turning from idols, serving the living true God, and waiting for his son from heaven. And so, yeah, that's in there. But no, I like that. Keep it simple. There are times to just keep it simple. I preached one of the uh, most convoluted sermons I've ever done in my life last week in my congregation. (laughs) Told them I was going to do it. I said, I'm, I literally said, I'm going to preach a sermon like I've never attempted before. And I think it'll work, but it might not. So y'all just bear with me. And so uh, this week, I know in my mind, I'm going in with clear cut, simple, about seven minutes, which is shocking and coming from my tradition and uh, just move on with it. Um, So that's a great one. Three pints and a poem. There you go. (laughs) Three pints. That worked. Three pints and a poem. Oh, Well, thank you, Bubba. Great text today. Preachers, I hope y'all have a great time digging into them this week. And as always, we try to, you know, we try to give you the wide variety of perspectives. We've talked about dysfunction in the U.S. House of Representatives, the intense (laughs) struggle between Israel and Hamas. We visited Samuel L. Jackson, snakes on a plane, and even worked in, oh, brother, where art thou? So, um, you know, have fun with it this week. We we are either ecumenical or eclectic we're not sure which yeah yeah or uh bless our hearts uh sometimes <laughs> okay Bob, not much left for us to do today other than to tell everybody bye everybody bye lectionary lab live is a two bubbles and a bible production our opening theme is next steps performed by half dot cool We go out today with All About the Money, performed by Swedish singer Maya, written by Douglas Ian Carr and Maya Anna Beckman. Sometimes I find another world inside my mind.
this pretty world is getting out of hand So tell me how we fail to understand Cause all the 